Well, uh, we've, we walked through the book of Galatians, if you recall, um, and uh, as we did that, we saw over and over Paul pointing back to the main point, and that is salvation comes through God alone. Um, and that there is nothing man can do to begin or to end his salvation. It comes through God alone. Well, one of the things I want us to do is often it is said, and actually more popular now than uh, it has been, say, in decades, it is often said that's a, and this is the way it will be put, that's a Pauline point. That is, that's something Paul says. That's kind of just Paul's way of looking at this whole thing. I want to make sure that we are together on the fact that it's not just Paul, it's the Lord Jesus Himself who makes this point. It's the Lord Jesus Himself who points us to the very fact that we are, those who believe, are born again by the Spirit of God. Real quick, here's how we're going to go about this. We're going to spend about two-thirds of our time just quickly marching through the text. What's happening here? What's going on? What does it mean? And then we're going to end up with three points of, okay, if this is the appropriate view of salvation, if this is the appropriate analogy being offered, then what is it? How, how does it help us? How, what observations can we make? And we're going to make three observations. So that's our trajectory this morning. Alright, so John 3, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let it be known from the outset, John does not intend to point Nicodemus, or to paint Nicodemus in a positive light. Quite the contrary. And throughout this entire passage, he is trying to show the uncourageous character and the lack of spiritual understanding of Nicodemus, at least in this account being offered. And the interesting thing is, notice that who Nicodemus is. He is a Pharisee. So, remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the best that the religious leaders of the Jews have to offer. And it would be understood in this text that they are the best, the Pharisees are the best that man has to offer. And he is described as a good Pharisee. So, here's what I'm after. If the Pharisees are the best that man has to offer, at least in terms of salvation coming from man alone. In other words, if salvation is going to come, it's going to come to the house of the Pharisees first. If that's true, and then if Nicodemus is the best of those, and the Pharisees are the best of that man has to offer, long story short, this is probably the best man that we could put forward to plead our case before Jesus that we can earn our own salvation. In other words, you might look at Nicodemus and say he's man's MVP. He's our most valuable player interviewing Jesus. How does he come to Jesus? Well, he comes to Jesus by night. Um, and we'll look at what that means. What Jesus says to Nicodemus, what Jesus says to all of mankind, 
is going to be this. And this is the main point of the sermon. Our great need is for new life. Remodeling, redecorating, upfitting are band-aids on a mortal wound. We need new life or we are eternally lost. Nicodemus comes in the night because he doesn't want others to know he's going to go visit Jesus. That's the uncourageous character part. He creeps his way to Jesus because he's ashamed to be seen in the presence of Jesus. Now, keep that in mind and listen to the first thing he says to Jesus. We know you are from God. <laughs> Given the signs you demonstrate, basically. <laughs> oh, wow. I know you're from God, but I had to creep under the, the, the uh, hiddenness of darkness of night to come see you because I'm ashamed of being known by you. That's our MVP, folks. <laughs> he looks at the God of the universe and says, I want you to know I think pretty highly of you, but I want to protect my reputation in case someone associates me with you. Keep in mind, this is our most valuable player at work. I love this. Praise God. Jesus doesn't play games with Nicodemus. He gets straight to the matter. Nicodemus tries flattery. You know, those signs are really strong signs. Does Jesus talk, talk about the signs at all? <laughs> no. He gets right at it. Jesus says to him, unless one is born again, he cannot have eternal life. He tries to pay a compliment to Jesus by basically saying, saying, guess what? I'm here to let you come kind of help clean up my house. And Jesus looks at him and says, bro, your house is condemned. The only hope you have is that it be completely wiped out and rebuilt. That's exactly what happened. Hey, good news is I'm here because I, I think there might be something here with you. And Jesus looks back at him and says, uh-uh. Your only hope is to wipe it out. Nicodemus is probably taken back. Jesus just told him that someone's got to be born again to get in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 4. I love this. Nicodemus, I love this because I can tell you, this would be me. I promise you, this would be me. Um, yeah, this would definitely be me. I, I absolutely love it. How can a man be born when he's old? <laughs> Nicodemus, got to be born again. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus basically responds with how? If you're going to say that, then you're going to have to explain this to me. That doesn't make sense to me. I need you to explain this. <laughs> Look at Jesus. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You're going to have to explain this to me, Jesus, because I do not understand this. Does Jesus answer His question? No. He doesn't answer the question at all. He goes right past it. 
And basically says, let me say this again, unless someone's born again, he's doomed. That's the fact. Whether you understand it or not, that doesn't matter. It's the fact. The funny thing is, Nicodemus has put forward this notion. Well, if a man's going to be born again, I guess he would have to enter back in to his mother's womb. And that's pretty drastic. So you can't be saying that. Notice what Jesus does. He says, oh no, I'm not saying that. Because that's not nearly drastic enough. (laughs) I'm saying something far more drastic. I'm saying the only way it can happen is if He is born of something He doesn't have. If He is born of Spirit. It must be a spiritual birth. A few points here. And I'm not going to completely exegete every angle here because it's just not enough time. But if you have questions about any of these, I'd absolutely love to talk to you about it. Um, There's footnotes. When He says flesh, Jesus says that all flesh can give birth to His flesh. Well, there have been those who would look at that and say, so He's talking about actual corporal body flesh. That doesn't jive with what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't meaning that. He's meaning flesh that is corrupt nature. That is... Flesh that is begotten nature from corrupt man. He's talking about our corrupt nature. Basically what he's saying is, long story short, there is nothing any fallen man can do to bring about his own salvation. All that a corrupt man can do is give birth to corrupt man. He cannot affect his own salvation. There is no eightfold path. There's no state of nirvana. There are no five pillars, no ten commandments, no pilgrimages, no amount of philanthropy or religious pluralism or enlightenment that will bring about the salvation of man on his own. And that was the message the Galatians needed to hear. They had to be reminded that the cross had already declared them morally bankrupt, spiritually dead, And here's the key. That was the beginning of the Gospel for the Galatians. It was the preamble to really good news. So when Jesus says all flesh can do is give birth to flesh, He's saying if you have it on your own, you are eternally lost. Well, that's the easy part. The other one is when. why does Jesus say water and spirit? Why does He throw water in here? Why does He throw in water? Because Jesus doesn't just say born of Spirit. He says born of water and the Spirit. Well, there are those who say, well, this means that you have to be baptized um, in order to be saved. Uh, There's a lot of reasons I think that's wrong. Uh, It is saying something about baptism, but it's not that. Uh, One of the biggest reasons is because it goes against the very point of the whole passage. The whole point of the passage is there's nothing any man can do to bring about his own salvation. So if baptism is something that man can do and it brings about his own salvation, it goes against the entire premise of the passage. That's not it. There are other reasons that I think it's not it as well, but one of the biggest ones, I won't mention all of them, one of the biggest ones is this. I think that he means something more with water. One thing we've already actually read together in our time when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 36. Before we get there, notice what Jesus does. He says in verse 6, 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So in other words, what Jesus has on His mind is a new birth that is spirit wrought. It is spirit brought about. We know that. So whatever we understand about water and spirit, it has to fit within the context of spirit wrought birth. So what does it fit? Well, it just so happens, Ezekiel chapter 36, we get this from the prophet Ezekiel. God is speaking and promising to the people of God, and we read this together, I will sprinkle clean what on you? Water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. So here we have married the concept of water in the concept of a new life. So what we get is when we are looking at new life, we are looking at cleansing. Part of the Spirit bringing new life is to cleanse us. And yet there's even a bigger point I think is being made here. What picture has Jesus chosen to use about salvation. He's got a lot of pictures he could choose from. Which one did he choose to use? He chose to use the picture of birth, of pregnancy and birth. Right? That's the picture he used. He took a physical picture, and he's actually going to tell Nicodemus this. I talked to you in earthly language. I try to bring it down for you. Right? He takes a spiritual, a physical picture. I'm not by any means a specialist in obstetrics. That's a very, very uh, under, a big understatement. Um, but I do know at least this. I know that water is a big part of it. I know that if water goes, there's problems, right? Um, I'm telling you, not a specialist. But I get this point. I get the point that when the water is gone, you better be making your way somewhere soon, right? Because there is... A baby is not going to survive in the womb without water. Why do I say that? Here's what I really think Jesus is after. And it fits with Ezekiel 36. I really think Jesus is saying this. The Spirit brings new life. But He doesn't just walk in and go, poof! New life. Everything's perfect. Old life gone. Now go. We're going to look at this a little bit more in a little bit. Instead, there is a means by which the Spirit brings about new birth. Just like water is the means by which the baby is formed and part of held into the womb, so also water points us to the picture that the Spirit is forming life. There's a process. It's not a mere one-time event, but it is a process of bringing about life where there was no life before. In other words, there's a pregnancy. There's an entire pregnancy. And we're going to look at that in a second. Keep going. And Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Um, he says that because He is marveling. Uh, the, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's great. So he says, don't marvel that you don't understand when I tell you to be born again. Don't, don't let that trip you up. Let me tell you why. Because that's a supernatural thing. Don't be shocked you don't get that. Why? Because you don't get natural things. And he points to one. You don't get the wind. You see its effects. 
But you don't know all the details of where it came from and you surely cannot control it. Now, I absolutely love that Jesus picked this and I'm sure He's glad that I love it. Um, I, I love that Jesus picked this because this is still true today, right? All of our technology, and we've got a lot of technology, we can tell you that a hurricane is about ready to wipe out your town. We can tell you somewhat that a tornado is coming and you could be in big trouble. Somewhat. Can we do a doggone thing to stop it? No. All we can do is say it's coming. It's coming and it's going to wipe it out. Point. We got no control over it. Point. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, there are natural things you can't touch. And you now want to command the supernatural things? And he looks at us. Google smartphones, Twitter, all of our technology. And he says, there are natural things you simply cannot touch. How dare you think you'll command the supernatural things? It's a beautiful, beautiful point. To summarize Jesus here, and again get the heart of the message, salvation comes as a gift from God alone in the unique form of new life, the formation of new creatures. And now marvel at Nicodemus' response. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, <laughs> seriously, he really does, how can these things be? How? Seriously, bro? Really? I mean, that's really the best we got. That's our MVP. And he looks at Jesus another time and goes, yeah, but I, I don't see how that could be. <laughs> I don't understand how it is that I can't bring about my own salvation. Folks, the fact that Nicodemus looks like a fool here is so stubborn here. And represents us here. I think should remind us of something. And I hope we saw this as we walked through Galatians. We do not like that the Bible looks at us and says, diagnosis, spiritually dead. Cure, nothing on your own. That grates at us. We're self-made creatures. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And Jesus Himself says, you can get nowhere on your own. My freshman year of college, I became really good friends with quite a few guys on my hall. I, I, uh, I, I really grew some quick friendships. It was interesting though. Almost every one of them came from a Christian home. And within weeks of being in college, almost every one of them abandoned the, the ways of walking in a Christian way, and lifestyle. That's a fair way to put it. And sadly, I'll be honest, most of them, to my knowledge, have never returned. They just abandoned their faith pretty much. Um, some of them were, and I'd respected the ones that were courageous enough to be honest about it and say this... I, you know, I, I can't go with it anymore. Uh, that I had more respect for them than the ones who claimed the name of Jesus but lived in a way that made no sense of the name of Jesus. 
But one of them was honest enough one time. We were having a long conversation. I'll never forget him saying this to me. He said, Tim, this is what I'm struggling with. I grew up like you grew up. He grew up in a Baptist home. He said, I grew up like you grew up. You're trying to tell me that all somebody has to do is raise their hand and say a prayer and they're going to heaven. And yet, on the other side of the globe, someone who's never heard about this faith is trying their darndest to live the right life. They go to hell because they never say a prayer? And i got to be honest. Number one, that was a really good question. Number two, I probably did not respond very well. I actually don't remember how I responded, but I'm sure it wasn't a very good response. But you know, what I didn't realize at the time is he was actually getting at something really good, really helpful. And it actually has driven me a lot. He wasn't making up what he heard. He was saying what he'd heard from a Christian culture he'd grown up in. And that is, like it or not, whether he realized it or not, or the Christian culture that he came up from realized it or not, they had boiled salvation down to Natural events. Namely, raising a hand, praying a prayer, signing a card. These were natural events. And it made no sense to him that these natural events would bring about the salvation of someone and someone else would go to hell. I think that's a very fair point. I think that's a very helpful question. I will ask you, where in the New Testament at all? Back it up for me. I beg you. Do you see salvation described as raising a hand or simply uttering a prayer? You will not see it in John chapter 3. What you will see is new life brings salvation. God bought new life. Now, some of you are saying, wait a second, are you saying someone cannot become a believer from saying a prayer or responding to an invitation? Well, if you're questioning that, then hold on. That's not what I'm saying. And hopefully by the end we'll have some clarity. If not, we'll have some good discussions, and that's always a good thing too. Alright, verse 10, keep all that in mind. Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? Now, I would like to kind of put in my own terminology there. Your man's MVP, and that's what you think? <laughs> Listen to this. This is great. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now, Jesus is talking. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Long story short, what Jesus is getting at here is, I'm not teaching you anything new. If you've been reading the prophets and the writings from the very beginning, and if you've read Moses, then you know the only way there's going to be salvation is if God brings it. That's not new, he says. That's what Jesus is saying. That, that's not new. That's why he says the we there. He's not having a, a, a lapse of schizophrenia. Instead, he's saying, I am speaking with Moses and with the prophets. And I'm telling you, it's always been told that way. How can you not know it? 
Ezekiel 36. Again, we read this together. Here's a couple excerpts. You tell me what you think the main emphasis is. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I will take you from the nations. I will sprinkle water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. You tell me from the prophet Ezekiel, where is salvation coming from? Is man doing something to bring it about? No. God says, I will do it. And by the way, I'll do it for my namesake. Then verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, then how can you believe if I've told you heavenly things? I absolutely love this. I think Jesus is saying this. Man, I've put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you, brother. I couldn't make it any simpler for you. I've taken things that are spiritual and I've put them in earthly terms. I took the whole idea of salvation and I talked about it in terms of birth. You get birth. And you don't get it? How in the world do you think you're going to understand the supernatural things? Then verse 13, No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from the heaven. From heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness so the Son of Man may be lifted up. Whoever believes in My name may have eternal life. Quick summary. Jesus says, Last time I checked, I'm the only one born of woman that's seen heaven. As such, it seems pretty clear to me if anyone else is going to go up to heaven, they're not going to go up on their own strength. They're going to need to be raised. Then he points to the serpent in the wilderness, which we don't have time to flesh all that out, but long story short there. They need someone who can atone for their sins and raise them to new life. And then he turns and says, I am that one. In here lies the Gospel. Friends, none of us can do anything to get an inch closer to heaven, which is a trillion miles away. Now just swallow that for a second. None of us can do anything to get one inch closer to heaven and it is a trillion miles away. We only have one hope. And that is that we have been given new life through the One who's purchased our redemption. Main point. Again, salvation comes from God-given new life. Salvation comes through God-given new life. Now, given that the idea of rebirth or being born again is an appropriate analogy for salvation, and we know it is because Jesus said it is. It might be a good Super Bowl message one Sunday if the Panthers ever make the Super Bowl I could preach. Is, is the idea of being born again an appropriate analogy for salvation. I could get up and read the passage and say, yes, go enjoy the game. Uh, maybe so, I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, if, if I ever do that, you know that guy has not had a lot of time to prepare. Uh, anyway, uh, verse... Uh, so, if, if, since it is, since we know it is, because it's out of Jesus' mouth Himself, what do we learn from it? I think there are three really helpful things about salvation we get because of the analogy that Jesus has given us. One... If we fail to understand the supernatural nature of our faith, we will misunderstand our faith. If we fail to understand the supernatural nature of our faith, we will misunderstand it. 
What is the supernatural nature of our faith? Simply stated, it's this. Man is corrupted and unable to save himself. By the way, there's nothing supernatural about that. That's just the way it is. But it serves as reason for us needing something supernatural. Here's the supernatural part. The Gospel is the good news that God who exists as three persons brings new life where there was no life. God the Father has ordained to bring salvation to whom He wills. God the Son has accomplished their salvation on the cross and in His perfect life. And God the Spirit breathes life into lost souls and awakens faith. He awakens belief. Now notice in that, what all does man contribute to that? What is our contribution to that whole game? Our sin. Ours is, our only contribution is the natural part. That we need salvation. Everything else is from God and God alone. And if that is not the major thrust of this passage, then I have fully misunderstood this passage. The truth that we have a supernatural origin of our faith must stand at the epicenter of what it means to be a church. We must firmly hold the amazing truth that God's gracious, life-giving, supernatural work is the only thing that will save us. We must stand on guard against our own tenacity and tendency to boil it down to natural means and methods. Let me say that again. We must believe that it's supernatural, but then we've got to stand on guard against our own tendency to want to make it natural. We must stand together ready to disclose to the world this wonderful news. We must be faithful and willing to work together for the kingdom's sake, and we must leave the results to the One who brings them. Namely, the One who brings life. It's observation number one. When we fail to misunderstand the supernatural nature of our origin, our faith, we fail to misunderstand our faith. Two, our assurance of faith will be found in our current spiritual life, not in our conception. Prior to being blessed with uh, two amazing gifts of our, our son and daughter, Heather and I endured years of struggle with infertility and many miscarriages. Needless to say, uh, when we found out that Heather was pregnant with both Asher and with Salem, we were ecstatic (laughs) and cautiously optimistic. I remember feeling those twin emotions at the same time. And i got to tell you, through those years of struggle, which I would never uh, want to relive, I learned a lot about the pregnancy hormone. Um, I, 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 I did stupid amounts of research on HCG and what it means because I wanted to understand a pregnancy test. I learned about doubling rates and a lot of weird stuff. Uh, in fact, I'll be honest with you, to this day, if I go by in the drugstore and I see, or grocery store, as soon as I sell them anywhere, probably the gas station these days, uh, pregnancy kit, as soon as I see a pregnancy kit, I just get a sick feeling in my stomach. I remember, I remember, I'm embarrassed to tell you the number of times that Heather and I would look at a pregnancy result, uh, the, the strip, and we would pretend we were seeing lines where there was no lines. 
There's nothing there. We were trying to make a negative result positive because we wanted it so bad. You know, it's funny. Um, when she got pregnant, Heather uh, was desperate to do anything to get to hear the heartbeat. Because we'd gone through times where she was pregnant and, and it would, there would be no heartbeat anymore. And so the first trimester, we would come up with all of the reasons in the world that we could to get an ultrasound or um, get a heartbeat. I about thought of going on plane rides just to see if they could see something in the x-ray machine and tell us about it. Um, but anyway, um, in the later months, Heather was weird. People would say, you know, is she sick? And I'd say, yes. Uh, and look at me odd, and they wouldn't realize. For Heather, that was awesome. She loved being sick. She loved getting kicked like a rag doll because she knew there's life. She knew there's life. Those are signs of life. Now keep all this in mind. Keep all of it in mind. Praise God. There are no spiritual miscarriages. Praise God. There's never going to be the case of new life being begun by the Spirit and not being preserved for the rest of eternity. That won't happen. It won't happen. We believe in something called the perseverance of the saints. It's not happening. But folks, there are scores of misread pregnancy tests. There are scores of people who profess faith when there simply is no life. Like Heather and I staring at the lines that were not there on a negative pregnancy test, there's often someone who wants somebody else to believe so badly that they're staring at lines that are not there. What do we learn from this? You know, it's funny, in all of our visits to the doctor, they never ask us to bring the pregnancy test with us. <laughs> they said, you need to prove to us that there's life there, so bring the pregnancy test. What do they do? We got there and they hooked her up to a machine and Heather and I were all ears, you know. Uh, let you hear a heartbeat. Or they hooked her up to a machine and we saw an ultrasound. They took a look. Is there life right now there? And if there is, we believe there's life. Stay with me. Isn't the raising of a hand and the walking of an owl or even the praying of a certain prayer akin to a positive pregnancy test? As such, those events, like a positive pregnancy test, can be cause for great rejoicing. But I want to say, I think they should also be cause for cautious optimism. Not because we're afraid of a miscarriage, there will be none, but because we are, we are cautious that the profession of faith actually represents new life. That is, just like we can misread a pregnancy test, we can also misread genuine faith. Okay? So what? Well, let's learn to listen for some heartbeats. Let's learn to use spiritual ultrasound machines. You say, well, how do you have a spiritual heartbeat and spiritual... and How do you listen for spiritual heartbeats and have spiritual ultrasound machines? I think the New Testament is clear. That's called the church. 
I believe the New Testament portrays that living in real community with other believers, honestly doing church, making it a verb, not a noun, gives us the opportunity to listen for regular heartbeats, an opportunity for regular scheduled ultrasounds of our souls. And it has to obviously be more than just showing up for a service. We've got to get involved in each other's lives. We must be able to see new life at work and see the struggle of old, dead, corrupt flesh actually dying. We must see the old man being overcome and the new life being formed. i got to tell you, if I had the conversation to do over with my friend, it would have gone, my response would have been this. You know, it is crazy to think that someone might be saved who simply utters a prayer or raises a hand. But that is not what Christians believe. Instead, we believe that salvation is so hard, so difficult, so costly, that the God of the universe was brutally marred and murdered so that He might purchase new life and we believe the only way anyone can be saved is that that same God awakens new life where there is zero life. That new life is often occasioned by the raising of a hand or the uttering of a prayer. But that life is so special that it will be monitored and guarded, helped and nurtured in a special organism called the church. And we will regularly say, there's life. Praise God, there is life. Point number two, let us not look at our conception for our assurance, but let us look at our current new life, signs of life. Last point, we are in the awkward phase of being formed Already, not yet. We're in the awkward phase of being formed already, not yet. If you, if you ask me right now if I have a daughter, I'm going to light up and I'm going to say, absolutely I do, and her name is Salem, and she stole my heart. And she's six weeks old. Now if you ask me that same question three months ago, it's going to be an awkward transaction here. You're going to say, do you have a, a daughter? And I'm going to say, well... Kind of, I, my wife's pregnant uh, and is doing just a couple weeks with a little girl. Why is that an awkward question? It's not, and I'm not even trying to get into that's a life and all that. Obviously, that's a life. Certainly, that's a life. And I had a daughter before she was born. That's not even the point I'm at. The point is, it's an awkward conversation. Like it or not, it's awkward. Why is it awkward? Because Salem was in an awkward phase. She was there. But she wasn't there. And you say, well, that, that's not actually true. I want to beg to differ. Because she was there, but now she's there in a very new way. Um, in a very new way. It's awkward because she was already and yet not yet. Inasmuch as a believer has been born again, brother or sister, you are already. And inasmuch as you stand on this side of eternity... You are not yet. You are in an awkward phase. And I'm in an awkward phase. We already have new life. 
But the old man is still crawling and scratching. We are guaranteed to be born into eternity. There are no spiritual miscarriages. And yet we still struggle with understanding why things happen the way they do. Remember the key verse of Galatians. It's verse 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul explains, I think there, how to live in this awkward phase. On the one hand, we're dying to ourselves. It is no longer I who live. On the other hand, we are being grown into the new life of Christ. It is Christ who lives in me. Maybe this picture will help. Christ's death purchased, bought, redeemed, atoned for our sins and gave us new life. And at that time, and at the time appointed by the Father, the Spirit blows life into us. The Spirit recreates us and life begins to form as we grow in the womb of the Spirit. So like it or not, right now you're in the womb of the Spirit. You're being grown in there. Well, life in the womb needs nourishment. Just like a baby in a womb needs nourishment, so also does our lives, our spiritual lives need nourishment. Where does it come from? It comes from the perfect righteousness of Christ. His life that He lived perfectly serves as a fountain of life-giving righteousness ready to be given to us to grow us in life. See, in the womb of the Spirit, You're being fed by the righteousness of Christ. That's what you're going to eat on for the rest of your existence, by the way. He purchased it. It's His. Now what about faith? Faith is the umbilical cord. It is created when your life was created. It connects us to our nourishment. Faith is that which connects us to the womb, the Spirit, and is that which connects us to the righteousness of Christ. And it brings all these things to keep us alive. That's what faith does. That's what I think Paul is making sense of when he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live it how? By faith. That's what connects me in this awkward phase to the womb of the Spirit. But praise God, there's coming a point in time when the cord's going to be cut because your faith will become your what? You know this, your eyes. You won't need it anymore because you'll fully be connected in life with Christ. There'll be no more struggle. You'll be fully birthed through the process. You will be a full new Creature. And so, wrapping up, I'm hoping through Galatians, I'm hoping through this message that we're reminded salvation isn't a natural thing. It's a freaky, supernatural thing brought about by God Himself. And there are those who have new life and there are those who don't. And there 
will be drastic differences in how they now live. And so what is our job as a church? Our job as a church is to look around and go, okay, so we connect with each other. We member together with one another to say, you have new life, I have new life. Can we do life together until we get there and it's all finished? And at that point, it's all okay. But right now, can we do life together? That's what I think is the beauty of the church. This is the hope for us that God will save us, save us in community by His Spirit, because of His Son, and at the Father's beckoning. Let's pray.